Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. The rush among pharmaceutical and biotech companies to develop vaccines and other therapeutics to address COVID-19 is really unlike anything I've ever seen before in my four decades of covering business. There are now more than 100 vaccines under development and even a greater number of treatments and therapeutics being tested. And the companies involved in this race are collaborating, sharing data, entering all sorts of agreements with companies that in normal times would have been their mortal enemies. It's very much like a wartime effort, the way I see it anyway. And it has a clear single goal to defeat the virus. Profit, as far as I can tell, is an afterthought which I can assure you is not the usual approach of the pharmaceutical industry. For the most part, work on these vaccines started in January, and we're beginning to see some results. Just yesterday, Moderna, the first company to test its vaccine in people, announced its early trial appears to be a success. The first volunteers who received the vaccine have all produced virus antibodies. Uh, It's a small test, but an important one. So that makes me super excited to introduce today's guest, Nubar Afayan. He is the CEO and the founder of Flagship Pioneering, an incubator for biotech companies based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Moderna is one of the companies in his portfolio. I spoke to Nubar last week before the latest announcement. So Nubar, tell us about the vaccine. We know life probably won't return to anything like normal until we have a vaccine. Uh, So uh, when do you think this one will be ready to roll out? So the vaccine that Moderna is developing really started its life early this year uh, in January, as soon as the sequence of the virus was available. And it is a completely different approach to bringing about the effect of a vaccine in the body. And that is using a molecule called messenger RNA. And so what we do is we provide the code for the protein that eventually stimulates the immune system to attack the natural virus. And that entered clinical trials in early March. And, and now we're advancing to the advanced trials, phase two, phase three trials. In terms of expected timing, it's difficult to speculate. There's been, uh, starting from Dr. Fauci, who's really leading this national effort to fight the coronavirus, there's been estimates of 12 to 18 months. That's a pretty loose estimate, uh, simply because it's based on a much shorter time frame than the three to five years it usually takes versus kind of a bottom-up estimate. But the reality is that based a bit on how rapidly the technologies can be scaled and based on how active the viral infection remains, that will dictate how quickly you can do a large clinical trial. And so, you know, the current estimates from us that we have publicly stated is that we're hoping and expecting to start pivotal trials. That's the last stage as early as early this summer. And, and those will continue for many months, but we will begin to generate data that can inform at least the emergency use kind of consideration, but also a broader BLA filing, we expect later in 2020 into 2021. And Nubar, for the broader filing, one of the issues is how quickly can you manufacture enough doses to meet all the people who may need it? What's your view on that with this vaccine? What is taking place is unprecedented 
both in speed and in scale. There's never been something that didn't exist one month and then three months later, five months later is entering tens of thousands of people. And then within a year plus, you expect to have it into hundreds of millions of people. There's never been any such thing in humanity. I figure maybe chocolate, somebody launches a new <laughs> chocolate, maybe it'll get to a billion people very quickly if it's a big hit, but not a drug and not a vaccine. And so there are challenges one thinks about in the actual production process. There's challenges one thinks about in securing the raw materials at the scales you need to do this. There's challenges in the actual distribution and the administration of the vaccine. And the rate at which you can scale that up is going to be different depending on what technology one is using. In our case, we are working extremely uh, actively in trying to foresee the bottlenecks and make sure we have the resources needed to stay ahead. And at the end of the day, we think of it as what can be done to go as fast as possible that money can allow and what can be done to go even faster, but then starts running into scientific uh, and just kind of physical impediments. And of course, the latter, we don't waste our time with because there's a natural time it will take to achieve some of the things we want. But everything we can do with resources, given the impact this disease is having on the economic well-being of nations around the world, the kind of money you need to do this quickly is a very, very tiny percentage of that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really, it's a moonshot. It's really important. There are reportedly a hundred different vaccines being developed. Why should we put our hope in this one in particular? First, let me say that it's encouraging to see so much science being applied to this problem because it's difficult to predict what ultimate solutions might involve. And I think we're going to need multiple vaccines to be able to supply the world regardless. And so I don't believe in a winner take all outcome here. And I'm very encouraged by what's going on. You know, whether you need 10 or 100, time will show. But certainly, we view our responsibility within the lane in which we operate. So I really do think it is as kind of a, a it may be a sprint, if not a marathon, but we're, we're running in our lane. And other people have their lanes. And we're not competing against them. We're competing to finish the race. And if we can finish the race, then we will have had an impact. And for us, we're thinking a billion doses capacity wow. for our technology is something that we believe we can achieve on an annual basis towards the later part of next year. That's the ultimate scales we want to get to. Working backwards from there, we are putting in place the production systems and the resources to be able to enable it. And that leaves another six billion for other people, doses to make. And, and we're perfectly happy having others with same or different approaches get to the finish line as well. Wow. Uh, Nubar, you mentioned Dr. Fauci is leading this effort. When he testified in the Senate recently, several senators said this uh, vaccine, whatever vaccine we develop, should be made available free to the people who use it. Is Moderna going to make any money off of this vaccine? I think it's fair to say that Moderna entered into this activity primarily for two reasons. One, to have an impact on the public health which obviously for each of its employees, each of its, its, its universe, all the other patients we try our other drugs on is a catastrophic event. And we couldn't think of how we could not participate with it. So there was a public kind of health need first and foremost. The second is, and it may be surprising to think of it this way, that you know, from the invention of this technology some 10 years ago in our labs and the development over so many years, 
we've always known that the particulars of this mRNA technology lend itself to very rapid deployment. The irony is there is really nothing in the pharmaceutical industry that needs that kind of speed because, you know, we jokingly describe it as in the pharma business, it's all about hurry up and wait. You know, you kind of hurry up and get into the clinic and then you wait ad nauseum until the clinical trials work. And so this was an opportunity we saw to truly test the enabling aspect of what going fast can mean, which is inherent in our technology. Interesting. So even if you don't make money off a vaccine, this proves that your technology has value. Not only that, it also allows us to scale multiple years earlier than we would have scaled with our other 15 yeah. programs. Keep in mind, we have 15 other programs that are in clinical development in oncology, in cardiovascular diseases, in other infectious diseases, or in rare diseases. So the entire platform, and we thought, would benefit from the the maturation that this would impose on us, if all works. And so look, I think as it relates to what you said with the senators and the questions, clearly there is a pandemic phase of this during which supplying where the need is, is the responsibility of governments and the people who are ultimately responsible to ensure the health security of their people. And we will work like every other company with those governments to make sure that that supply is assured. There will also be, and I think it's important to understand because this is partly a commercial world, but there will also be a time when this disease will hopefully enter the ranks of otherwise chronic infections that actually coexist with humans. And for that purpose, which will no longer be pandemic, no longer even be epidemic, but endemic, it will kind of coexist with us like many other viruses, there, I think there is an opportunity long-term to be able to envision a vaccine that delivers value. And that's, to me, a different phase of this. We're all busy thinking of the pandemic, but I think depending on how it plays out, there may well be a, a use for such a vaccine 50 years from now, not just in the next five months. Yeah, and that may explain why your investors are so happy. I mean, I've seen, you're, it's a public company, by the way, I should tell our listeners. And the company's stock price has risen, what, 3x, more than 3x since the first of the year. Yeah, I mean, look, stock prices are reflective of an expected future. There is a, a low probability event that a vaccine gets approved. I say low probability only because everything in this business is low probability. But the upside of that probability has gotten much larger because of its uplifting potential effect on the rest of our programs, including this as a product line. So, you know, I think people are obviously trying to envision a future state in which Moderna could be a commercial company with this and many other vaccines and other products. And that's the reflection, I would say, of the expectation. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, every crisis creates opportunities and great challenges spark even greater innovation. How should leaders make the most of the current crisis and the current challenge? Alan, if I look at our own organization at Deloitte, we have over 300,000 professionals around the globe 
who have virtualized the firm overnight, you know, maintaining continuity of exceptional service to our clients. And we're advising our clients right now to devote the right energy to each phase of what lies ahead. There is certainly the near term of responding and recovering, but after that, you want to be positioned to thrive. Yeah, that's really interesting, Joe. We're not going to return to normal. We're preparing for a new normal. We are. And while it is unfortunate that these challenging and tragic circumstances are serving as the catalyst, there can be no doubt that the new ways of working, the new ways of delivering within a complex value chain are going to fundamentally change the way in which work is accomplished forever. Joe, thanks for being part of it. And thanks for your sponsorship of this podcast. Alan, it's a privilege. Welcome back to Leadership Next. I'm speaking with Nubar Afayan, the founder and CEO of Flagship Pioneering. Uh, Nubar, you have a whole portfolio of life science companies. I assume some of the others are working on COVID-19 therapies, treatments, et cetera. Yes. In fact, we have about nine different uh, entities wow. that are going at this in multiple different ways. We have companies that are using AI machine learning approaches to very rapidly determine small molecules, drugs that could be used based on understanding what these drugs do to cell behavior when a cell is infected by a virus. So that's a, an active program. We have additional programs where we are purely computationally designing antibodies against the virus in a time frame that previously used to take six, nine months. We're doing these in one or two days, and we've generated hundreds and hundreds of these antibodies that are being pursued right now. We have approaches that we're looking at that have to do with home testing. Uh, so one of the things people are talking a lot about is this whole idea of antibody testing. Well, it turns out that the dirty little secret of antibody testing is that they need your blood. And people are offering up pregnancy tests-like or blood droplet size kind of devices. Problem is these are not quantitative. We have a, a company in an approach, a company called Seven Sense, which is really the only FDA approved device that you could ship to somebody's home and can draw 200 microliters of blood and ship it to a lab for testing. And that was not the intended use, but that's being scaled up quite rapidly to be able to take care of what might be millions of tests. I mean, that portfolio gives you a pretty unique perch to look at the various efforts to address this pandemic. I wonder if you could tell us what kind of confidence that gives you and in what kind of time frame that we will have not just the vaccines, but the therapeutics and the testing abilities to really reduce the threat and the, the kind of lockdown threat that this has imposed on our society. I mean, look, I think confidence, um, I have confidence in the science and the technology I have confidence that the government is going to focus enough resources and regulatory support to enable these things to safely be available. And, you know, confidence is different than hope. You know, confidence has some facts to it. And I am confident based on all the different approaches that I see up close and the way in which the government and the FDA and the various other agencies, NIH, CDC, are working on this. You know, look, all the criticism aside, a pandemic creates a rather chaotic situation and business has to keep its wits about it to try to come up with products that can actually enable a solution space. I can see that beginning to emerge. A vaccine would help in that regard, but so will therapeutics and so will better and broader accessible 
test. Yeah, you, you talked about this as unprecedented, but of course we have had health threats like this in the past. I mean, if you think about Ebola or HIV or polio is the one that rocked earlier generations, and we will undoubtedly have them in the future. And I know you've thought a lot and talked a lot about this issue of health security. I wonder if you could tell us what you mean by that. Sure. I mean, health security for me is a concept we've been working on for a couple of years that goes beyond a pathogen or a pandemic, but rather is the concept that what we call healthcare today, if you really look at it, is mostly about sick care. And you know that because you have to get sick to get any. We foresee a day where actually healthcare is, in the first instance, a set of approaches that provide health security, that is prevention, early detection, delay, deter, defer, everything you can do before you get sick, and then sick care. And the analogy we use is in our physical defense, particularly the one that's provided by the military. Our physical defense is not all about bombs and airplanes. It's about a whole lot of things up front, starting from surveillance, that actually make this only the last step needed when you're actually involved in large-scale battle. And I think that the reason healthcare costs have gone through the roof is because it is sick care, and it is expensive to provide sick care because it's largely too late. And so within that framework, and this could apply to every disease, one of the things that we talk about within this context is the notion of a pre-disease, right? In our experience as humans, we are well, and then somebody tells us we're sick, and then we get sick as though it happened on that day. But if we only knew in the past five years that we are going through a journey that is taking us to a potentially sick place, we have the molecular techniques today to identify that, to figure out what might derail that process. And that doesn't exist as an industry today. We envision creating that. Now, that concept as it relates to pathogen threats would also apply. So you don't wait till there's an all out pandemic to come up with a vaccine or a treatment. You put in place surveillance, you put in place rapid response, you put in place production capacity that as soon as you have something very quickly can be produced. Those are things that were discussed in the past after the influenza, outbreaks and, and, and Ebola and Zika, etc. If we're going to talk about never again, we have to build what we call a pathogen defense shield. And this is the moment that we can take some positive value out of the experience we're going through. It's a great framework. Thank you for that. Tell us a little bit about Flagship. What makes it different? Why is it different from, say, a venture capital firm? What we're about is to anticipate and identify completely unprecedented solution spaces for what we consider to be major challenges. Typically, we work in human health and also in sustainability. So we have quite active efforts in the nutritional and agriculture fields as well, where we use life sciences to do those. But basically, pioneering for us is innovation at the very extreme. That is doing something for the first time that opens up a whole new set of possibilities. So when you say, how is this different than venture capital, uh, having spent my life the last 33 years starting companies primarily, which is what I've done as an entrepreneur, what it takes is ideas, people to execute, and capital. And today, the way startups work is that ideas come from many academic centers, because in life science, there's office science that comes behind this. So ideas come from one place. The people who execute them come from all sorts of places. And then you have a third place from which capital and experience comes. What we created 20 years ago with flagship pioneering 
is actually an institution that was entirely dedicated to systematically making breakthrough innovations and to institutionally create companies out of them. And those words don't usually go well with innovation and startups. In other words, systematic and institutional are considered heretical because people want to believe that you know magical moments and serendipity and luck and chaos and romance. The garage myth. Right, and 33 years of doing this later, I feel like that that's nice, you know, that's good storytelling. <laughs> But actually, this is not, you know, there was a time 300 years ago, 200 years ago, when people used to practice what we now call medicine, and they were considered magicians and potion makers and and wizards. And eventually there was a profession and people did it for a living and they had to be accountable and they had a Hippocratic oath and it became a profession. I think that scientific innovation and entrepreneurship has to and is becoming a profession in flagship pioneering is one of the first establishments that is making that a possible reality. Nubar, we talk a lot on this podcast about companies that are working to maximize their positive social impact as well as their profit. But when you talk about starting companies to make breakthrough innovation, you're really starting with social impact. Absolutely. And that's by the choice of what we work on. By focusing on human health and sustainability, everything we do is to create a completely new possible solution that doesn't exist today. In fact, to be very clear, if you look at what we've done, including Moderna, when we start these things, they are completely unreasonable, completely unreasonable, (laughs) and therefore dismissed. And unprofitable. And they're not profitable. (laughs) And what I tell people is that every one of the things we try to do, and speaking of social impact, I believe that humanity has largely used up all the obvious things to do to have social impact. We have to work on things that are unobvious and unreasonable and identify from those the subset that might turn out to be realizable. So put it in a, in a short way, we have to start with science fiction and take the fiction out. <laughs> take the fiction out. So our capital goes after how to take the fiction out of the subset of science fiction that turned out to actually be science fact not science fiction. Yeah, beautiful. You were born in Lebanon. You're an immigrant. Can you talk about how that background has informed this approach to business? Uh, sure. Um, I'm born in Lebanon. I'm of Armenian descent. Uh, Armenians are a old, old tribe that has been spread all around the world due to our history. And as an immigrant, and, I, and, and my family left the civil war in Lebanon uh, before coming to North America, I've come to think of immigration, uh, that is the act, whether by choice or by force, to end up in a completely foreign place where the culture, the language, the rules are completely foreign. And what that does to you as a person to try to struggle to survive and then eventually figure out how to thrive. That journey is in my view, the physical equivalent of what innovation is. I view innovation as just intellectual immigration. When you leave the comforts of what you know, expose yourself to criticism, go to something that people don't believe is possible, persist, persist, persist until you make it inhabitable so that people come and tell you how obvious it was years later. That is what an immigrant does. So it's not that that gives immigrants an advantage, but rather that I would invite people to think of the immigrant mindset when they are doing these kinds of innovation, particularly cutting edge innovation, and recognize that it is a strength that the kind of resilience, the adaptivity, all the things that we think are rarefied skills in an entrepreneur That's what every immigrant has to go through. Nubar Afayan, fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. 
Thank you so much. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-suite insight available now at the all-new Fortune. You'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.